From La Trobe, Asia, this is the final episode of The Catch. Hello, I'm Beck Strading, the director of La Trobe, Asia, and in this mini-series, we have heard about the problem of modern-day slavery and human trafficking in the fishing industry across the Asia-Pacific region. This is part six, Victims' Voices. I'm joined by Dr Sally Yeh, a Tracy Banavanua Ma Fellow at La Trobe University and a human geographer and expert in the human impact of slavery. Thank you for joining me, Sally. Thank you, Beck. Your project was titled Victims' Voices, which is also the name of this final episode of The Catch. And it was based on in-depth narratives authored by returned fishers themselves. Why was it important to include these voices and how did they shape your report? Yes, thanks, Beck. The idea of including in-depth narratives by fishermen themselves came from my critical reading around a lot of the media exposés, NGO reports, and even some academic research that's appeared recently on this subject of seafood slavery. And one common thread throughout much of the existing work on this issue was a real lack of engagement with the victims themselves and a real lack of a sense that their voices and their experiences and even the way they interpret their experiences were coming through in publications and media and so on on this issue. And Look, I think that the danger in doing this is that the issue can often be sensationalised and victims' experiences can be portrayed in quite narrow ways. And I was really conscious that we didn't want to replicate that kind of tendency in research on seafood slavery, that we wanted to make it a much more realistic account and one that really reflected the men's own anxieties, their priorities, their emotions and their feelings about their experiences because it's really something that you don't see very much in the existing work on this issue. So you've been researching different aspects of workers' rights uh, from migrant worker precarity uh, and forced labour right through to human trafficking across the Asian region. So what motivated this project in particular? The issue of trafficking of fishermen and forced labour of, of migrant fishermen in this region is one that was fairly neglected up until a few years ago There has been a lot of research in this region on human trafficking and forced labour and and other forms of modern-day slavery in other sectors, agriculture, domestic servitude, the sex industry and so on. But there hadn't been very much work or interest in the fishing industry, particularly the, the offshore fishing industry. This changed about five years ago 
when there were a couple of big NGO research projects and big media stories on this, um, focusing on how the UK and the US were importing seafood that was caught by slave labour. So that represented a juncture on this issue and a lot more people began paying attention to it. So it was really my interest in the way that that was being reported and the way the issue was being framed and understood that motivated this particular project. I guess a lot of the existing work on this issue has tended to focus on supply chain transparency and looking at ways of cleaning up seafood supply chains. And You know, that's a great focus for research and policy and advocacy on this issue. But we really wanted to understand the fishermen's experiences in a lot more detail and particularly to look at the ways that they navigated things like leaving the vessels, how they navigated return home, how they navigated justice processes. So all these sorts of aspects that have been kind of overshadowed by this focus on supply chains. So Sally, in your research, you take more of a rights-based approach to the issue of modern day slavery and human trafficking at sea. Can you explain a little bit about what a rights-based approach looks like? Yeah, it's definitely a rights-based or victim-centred approach. And I think one of the key aspects of this kind of approach to studying this issue is that it foregrounds the experiences of the victims in a much more central way than a lot of other approaches to the research. And foregrounding those experiences of course, that raises methodological and ethical issues as well. And it's those methodological and ethical questions that were really at the centre of the Victims' Voices project. We really wanted to base this project on a participatory and empowering approach to addressing and researching and working with victims of trafficking in the fishing industry to enable them to have a platform to really tell their stories to a broader audience. And I guess in that respect, the researchers on this project were more like facilitators of men's own voices. And that's really been the central guiding platform of this research. And of course, this is research that is being undertaken during a time of COVID-19 pandemic where, you know, travelling in the region was very difficult or impossible in the case of Australians. So I wonder about this process of how you uh, went about finding and recording the narratives from the fishers? Was it a smooth process or did complications arise that you hadn't accounted for? Yes, well, definitely COVID is a complicating (laughs) factor at the moment and, you know, continues to some extent to be so. The other key aspect of the Victims' Voices project and the approach that we adopted had to do with NGOs. 
So one of the guiding principles of the research, apart from elevating the men's own voices and experiences, was to include NGOs, particularly local NGOs, that work closely with returned fishermen and to include those NGOs in ways that enable them to develop their capacity in conducting research on this issue. Because what we also often find is that researchers from overseas universities or big international organisations often go in and collect stories and use NGOs in ways that do not really help the NGOs to build their own capacity and their own skills to lead research and lead advocacy on this kind of issue. So we were very conscious of that. So part of this research process was to build local partnerships, one in Indonesia and one in Fiji with NGOs that were working tirelessly on this issue, representing and supporting returned trafficked fishermen and and fishermen who'd been subject to forced labour. And so the local NGOs received training on ethics and research and interviewing and all of those really important aspects of the research process that they could then use not only for this project but also to take with them in future so that they could then lead similar projects down the track. So as far as the smooth process was concerned, the role of the NGOs became even more important Mm. than what was originally planned because none of the research team could travel to Fiji or to Indonesia to guide the local NGOs with the interviews and meet and talk with the returned fishermen themselves. So all of that work was handed over to the partner NGOs. And so what that meant was that our engagement as a research team with the NGO partners was much more intense and sustained we really needed to have ongoing constant communication with the NGOs and feedback. And so there was a lot of discussion, a lot of feedback on the narratives that the NGOs were helping to collect from the men. So it really became a much more communication intensive process than what we originally had intended. But it was the local NGOs and their research assistants who located and approached all of the participants in the research in the first place. Now, Sally, you mentioned that in a research project like this, ethics is very important and we're dealing with a lot of sensitivities and and men that may have experienced trauma and have had difficult work and living conditions on these vessels. How did you approach those ethical issues about doing this kind of research? Mm. Ethics for any kind of research on human trafficking and related issues is a very fraught process. There are very stringent and rigorous 
institutional requirements at university ethics review boards. So we passed that hurdle, which was several months in duration and several rounds of amendments to the original ethics application. But look, beyond the formal ethics approval processes from the university, we really try to build a culture of ethical research amongst the NGO partners that we were working with. So we had webinars and some recorded sessions and I put together some documents and some case studies for the NGOs which talked about ethical research with victims of human trafficking. It really struck me several years ago when I started working on these issues in the Asia-Pacific region how loose ethics requirements actually were both for NGOs and also for some academics. So we really wanted to make sure that as part of the capacity building process, ethics was given priority. Now, these men, they do experience a range of issues and problems that could put them at further risk if they participate in the research. So recounting traumatic events on the fishing vessels, for example, discussing their anxieties around not being paid correctly, emotional issues around shame and failure of having returned home with nothing. So the first step, I guess, was really to identify all of those kinds of risks then to really work closely with the NGO partners who know these men really well and to be able to manage those risks in ways that didn't put the men at any further risk of traumatisation. And if the NGOs themselves didn't feel that they could handle any risks that came about as a result of the men's participation in the research, then there were other avenues that there could be referrals made to other organisations and other institutions. So those sorts of processes were really important in ensuring that the research participants were not made more vulnerable as a result of their participation in this research. And in fact, Because this research was really based on the principle of empowerment and voice, we actually felt that the men who participated had a sense of self-worth and achievement from their involvement in this project. And we really hope that that comes through in their narratives, which will be shared with a wider audience. And as part of this project, you and Associate Professor Christina Stringer have written a report produced by Winrock International, which is now available. And so how do you hope that will be used and what do you think the next steps are? Yeah, the report is one of the key outcomes of the project. And apart from being on La Trobe Asia and Winrock International's websites, so anyone can download and read the report there. 
The report will also appear on the websites of both of our local NGO partners. And it's really our hope more than anything that the report, particularly the recommendations, which were developed with their input, that those recommendations can be used by our partner NGOs for lobbying and advocacy to their respective governments and also to international organisations. Both of our NGO partners have lamented to us. They find they're often put in a situation where they're asked for information and they're not really given very much credit for the information that they give. And so this way they will be able to actually give a comprehensive report that has their names on it and their input into the reports to give that to anybody who's asking them for information. And so we think that that then puts these NGOs on an equal footing with many of these big international organisations that are often asking for information and not reciprocating with much in return. So that's one of our main hopes is that the NGOs themselves become empowered through the report and through the findings. And for us, that's just as important as any other kind of audience reading the report and accessing the report. So that personally is one of my great hopes. So what is the future direction of your research? Are there other aspects of forced labour that you will be studying further? I imagine there will be. Yes, look, with the project on seafood slavery, we're looking very closely now at a couple of key things. One is issues around justice and access to justice and the barriers to access in receiving justice. And we have talked about that in one of the earlier episodes of these podcasts. So that's one of the directions we'll keep working on over the next couple of years. We're also very interested to look in more detail at issues around deaths on board these vessels and injuries. And of course, that also is an aspect of justice, something that's not been particularly well documented to date. The other thing that we're interested in looking at is the post-trafficking livelihoods of the men who return home. What happens? How do they reintegrate into their communities? Whether they successfully reintegrate or not, or what their trajectories actually are. One of the things that I'm personally very interested in is looking at the impact of COVID on vulnerability, both in the global fishing industry and in other sectors where there are a lot of precarious migrant workers. Because I think what we're seeing is workers being sent home without being paid, a lot more workers as companies go bankrupt or shed workers. We're seeing a lot of employers criminalising their workforce so that they don't have to pay them and deal with them. And then, of course, they don't even need to cover the cost of repatriation Mm. then. 
So we're seeing a lot of those kinds of things in the seafood industry as well as in other sectors where there are a lot of precarious migrant workers. I think that's a really important thing to be looking at over the next couple of years as well. So as far as this research is concerned, those are some of the directions that we're interested in taking this work. And I think a final thing that probably really needs a lot of closer attention is the relationship between climate change Mm. and human trafficking in the fisheries sector. I think particularly in the Pacific, as people are losing their livelihoods and are forced into jobs on fishing vessels. I think drawing out that relationship between climate change, the impact of loss of livelihoods and so on, and work in the fishing sector is something that really needs to be much better documented than what it is at present. Absolutely. Well, this is the final episode of The Catch, and I have been joined by Dr. Sally Yeh, a Tracy Banavanua Ma Fellow and Associate Professor at La Trobe University. Thanks again, Sally. Thank you, Beck. You've been listening to The Catch, a podcast mini-series produced by La Trobe Asia. You can find the report on the La Trobe Asia website. Our theme music is Fruition by Edoy. This podcast was developed with the support from the United States Agency for International Development. The views do not necessarily reflect those of USAID. I'm Beck Strading, and thanks for listening.